don't procrastinate. I think that's the biggest problem with people is just waiting for the next deal. When's it going to be better? You know, is it a 7% return or 10% return? I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't freaking matter. Right. I mean, it's, right. you've got to get off the sidelines and you've got to pony up and at least get in there. doesn't need to be a lot of money, but it need, it will force you once you put skin in the game to learn. And once you have a stake in that equity, you'll be amazed at what happens to you and the learning you'll just passively absorb because you've got that interest. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to the, another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, the number one podcast geared towards helping investors and real estate entrepreneurs break into the U.S. market. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to be with us on the show. Now, remember, if you do like this show, you can jump on iTunes and leave the show a five-star review. It is quick, it is simple, and it shows iTunes we are creating a massive community of eager investors who want to start investing here in the United States. You can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching Reed Goosens. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with the dangerous duo brothers Tom and Tim Black. Tom, aka Dr. Black, is board certified in emergency medicine. Prior to medical school, he worked for Wells Fargo Financial overseeing residential mortgage loans. Tom is an active blogger in the healthcare community and passionate about translating high income earners to high net worth individuals through passive real estate investing. On the other hand, Tim has spent his 30 year career at Six Flags Theme Park and Great Wolf Resorts. Throughout his 30 year span, Tim became well versed in operations, strategic planning, marketing, sales, revenue, management, and real estate development. He is a former chief operating officer for Great Wolf Resorts, which owns and operates over 14 resorts in North America. Tim worked closely with private equity to develop new resorts, maximize revenue through pricing and demand, digital marketing, and implementing new revenue streams. So without further ado, let's get them out here. G'day guys, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good morning, Reed. How are you? Very well. How are you? Where are you dialing in from today? <laughs> <laughs> I am in the uh, bright, sunny state of Texas, right outside nice. uh, North Fort Worth. Nice. And yourself, Tim? Ah, good morning. I was uh, making comment earlier that the Aussie accent is nice this morning. We, we appreciate this. Uh, I am calling in from uh, actually sunny Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, really? It'll be a balmy 81 degrees today, believe it or not. So you guys live in opposite parts of the country? We do. Yeah, we do. Nice, nice. I've heard a lot about Madison. I really want to get up there. I've heard it's a cool little town. Similar to Austin, I've heard, but I don't know if that's correct. No, you know what? Your statement's absolutely correct. It's, it's um, many, many people refer it to as kind of the mini Austin. It's not quite as big, but it's very cool because obviously you have a you know, large university with the University of Wisconsin and then government is right downtown as well. So yeah, many, many people feel that it's the same way. So it's a pretty cool little area. Nice. Old as heck for about 140 <laughs> days a year. Outside that, it's okay. Nice stuff. So the reason I got you guys on the show today is to talk about a lot of things, but what I want to do before we dive into the nuts and bolts is can you elaborate, uh, can you both elaborate on your backgrounds and what uh, made you have the mind shift chain to get involved in real estate investing full time? Gotcha. Well, I guess I'll take that one first, Timmy. Um, so I, uh, <laughs> I uh, was not a stellar uh, high school student, uh, barely graduated, joined the Navy because I couldn't have gone to even a technical university or a, uh, an, online, an online school. So I uh, joined the Navy at age 17, saw a bit of the world, um, made the decision that uh, I needed to get an education. For some reason, I jumped, in, jumped into uh, to medicine. It was very difficult. And uh, the perception that, that medicine and physicians are rich, uh, which is not necessarily the case. <laughs> Um, having learned that about a decade later, um, I was satisfied with what I was doing, but I found myself in a, uh, in a profession that seemed to just uh, rely on human capital. I didn't have any assets that I could speak of. I wasn't a business owner. Um, I was basically still a high-paid hourly employee. And so when I finished my residency um, in Indianapolis, I uh, started getting into rental houses and things. And right about that time, it was uh, the downturn in the market, 2008, 2007. So I started buying uh, foreclosure homes. We bought uh, about 10 or so, did very, very well and kept them as rentals. And then I really learned the appreciation of, uh, of tax depreciation. 
And so once I started doing that, I absolutely got hooked. Um, from there, I started uh, doing a little bit of developments uh, with a partner, built an apartment complex from the ground up, um, did well on that. 1031 exchanged that into some commercial properties and then decided to up and leave my practice uh, of, of 20 uh, emergency physicians in a different part of the state and moved to Dallas basically for real estate. So I knew that, uh, that there's bigger, better things out there. And once I got into real estate, I was absolutely hooked. Nice, nice. And, and, and Tim? So my career is uh, actually quite different. Um, I uh, grew up in hospitality and entertainment and early part of my career, uh, 18 years I spent with Six Flags theme parks moving uh, primarily through the Midwest and then uh, on the East Coast, I was park president um, for three or four of their parks. And then, um, you know, about the turn of the uh, millennium, um, we, the company was not doing very well. So I decided to move on and had an opportunity to go to Great Wolf Resorts, which um, has today about 15 or 16 properties throughout the U.S. and North America. Um, was the chief operating officer there for 12 years. A great experience. You know, when I started with the company, uh, we had four properties and you know, spent a lot of time actively developing. You know, the last property that I opened actually is in your backyard, Reed, in Anaheim, mm -hmm. uh, about a half a mile down from Disney. And then I retired. Um, about a week after um, and, and took about six months off. And, um, you know, one thing that, you know, I'd always admired about Tom was kind of his fortitude and focusing on, on, on real estate and learning about real estate and being super passionate about it. So um, obviously I was very young to retire and, and was thinking about what I wanted to do. Did I want to sit on some public boards? Um, you know, did I want to consult, which everybody does. And neither one of those two sounded very appealing, especially after 32 years in entertainment and hospitality. So um, Tom and I partnered and, you know, we, we've had uh, just an incredible ride. Uh, this space is uniquely uh, different. Um, uh, it's it's in many ways very similar to hospitality and hotels because there are rooms. Um, I'm particularly uh, passionate about how this space uh, prices rooms. You know, when you think about demand and pricing and they go hand in hand, this space in multifamily seems to be a little bit in its infancy about how they think about pricing. And, you know, a room today or an apartment today um, you know, should be different on a Saturday, depending on the time of year and what your traffic is, what demand is. So um, that's what excites me about this business. Um, and, you know, we've done, uh, you know, some fun things so far. And we, again, appreciate you having us on uh, this morning. No, it's great. It's great to have both of you on. And it sounds like you've got such a diverse background of experience because, you know, coming from a physician yourself, Tom, and, and being sort of more on the, the nuts and bolts of it, Tim. So it sounds like you contrast each other quite well. I want to talk a little bit about the investment strategies you guys are focused on. I know you've mentioned multifamily, um, but is that the only investment strategy you're pursuing during this current economic cycle or climate that we're in right now? Sure. Um, no, I'd say probably right now it's more 70, 75%. Um, you know, with the current climate, especially in Texas, as you know, uh, you know, cap rates have been very, very decompressed. Um, you know, it's just a lot of inventory out there for one reason or another, whether you say it's a national, national kind of thing with, uh, you know, with millennials, with the age of the population, choosing to rent, you know, with the restriction of banking. Um, it's a great question. I think that you have to be really diligent about the communities you're looking at and what you're buying. Right. What's, what's today is not necessarily going to be uh, tomorrow. Uh, the other things we are looking at, we actually just closed last month on a commercial asset, some triple net lease industrial buildings. Uh, we, uh, we've got about five of those in our portfolio. Um, they do very, very well. Um, and actually, as of about two weeks ago, we're starting to meld in some of Tiv's experience. Um, uh, from hospitality and we're looking into limited and select service hotels too. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Very, very similar. As you said, it's just, you know, it's renting a room. Essentially, it's just the, the operations is the, is the limiting factor and the, and the barrier to entry to get into that business. Um, unlike multifamily, we have third party management. It's just a little bit more difficult. So we definitely like that and we're pursuing it. Um, you know, we've got some goals going into 2018 as, uh, as, as bringing some of those assets into the portfolio as well. No, interesting. And so, Tim, you'd be bringing in that experience, right, with the uh, select service. What sort of what sort of select service hotels are you looking at in terms of flags? You know, Marriott has a lot of great brands. When you think of limited select service, um, you know, so so does uh, Starwood. So mm -hmm. we're looking at both those. Um, you know, that that uh, segment has obviously grown significantly. 
um, since 2008. So we're going to be very selective about the markets that we're in. Obviously, we like demand generators, whether it be, you know, the airport is a demand generator or corporate business parks area, uh, you know, as demand generators. But we think there's a really nice opportunity um, to blend kind of my experience and my background and be able to return, you know, the kind of uh, uh, investment returns that our, our, you know, investment investors uh, kind of come to desire. A hundred percent. And it's, it's a little bit interesting. I don't, I haven't spoken a lot or a great length about uh, hotel investing and we'll probably get dive into that in, in a little bit, but why in general do you guys like the commercial side of real estate investing compared to say single family? Like you, you talked about you're in commercials, triple net lease, you're in multifamily, you start looking at hotels. Why is that? Why did you make that change from single families into multis? Or um, for me, really, it was uh, basically three things. Um, you know, it's economies of scale, number one. Right. Um, number two, it's the same work. Uh, for me to go out and find a 1,500 square foot or 1,000 square foot house mm-hmm. uh, to do light rehab on it to get a tenant, it's the same as me going out and, uh, and finding a 300 unit apartment complex for the, for the most part. And then the third thing is the tax evaluation. If you can return the same, the same amount of you know, risk, and, and oddly enough, most people uh, that are well-versed in real estate would say that, uh, and, and I agree, I would say that a single family home is actually more risk to me than um, you know, a large 300 unit community. In that, you have a non-recourse loan, and the bank is actually your partner. I mean, the bank has no interest whatsoever in you doing poorly on the asset. So I think there's a lot more of a partnership mentality versus you owning a single-family home and, and having a renter in there. Um, it's just much more advantageous, and I think it's scalable much, much quicker. Right. And yourself, Tim? Yeah, I mean, I would agree. You know, it, it's the multiple. You know, when you think about all under one roof, you know, multiple opportunities to rent individual apartments or in my case, you know, hospitality rooms. I mean, you just get that multiple on it and, and you know, obviously puts, you know, the investment in a much, much better place. But I think Tom absolutely hit it on the head. Yes, sweet. And so, guys, given where we are in the real estate, you know, climate today, and you and I, we've talked a little bit offline about how hard it is to find deals, particularly in Dallas-Fort Worth. What specific markets are you looking at right now, given the types of different asset classes you're starting to dip your toe in outside of multifamily? Right. Um, Right now, we've we've moved into probably the last six to eight months. We've looked in the Atlanta market. Um, Seems strong. Uh, A lot of good infrastructure things going on. A lot of corporate entities. We tend to like the southern, you know, kind of southeastern states just because of the, they're a little more landlord friendly mm-hmm. uh, than the north. Um, it's really where, uh, where I feel more comfortable. Um, when you look at, uh, you know, maintenance, uh, things like that, and, and that we need to figure, Tim's got a couple of, of places up in Madison. I mean, things like snow removal and all these kind of things that I don't like to put in my, in my budget. <laughs> I, I like something sunny. Um, the other area we're looking at, there's some places in North Carolina we're really, really interested in. But what we're concentrating on is to take two markets, essentially, and really dive in and dissect them. Rather than being segmented all around and just chasing the dollar, uh, I really want to get to know the markets and the submarkets, And that's what we've chosen to do in the two markets we're going after. Like you said, in Dallas, it's just gotten to the point where so, – uh, yeah, you know, it's hard to be bidding against 12, 20 people and then going to best and final with another 10. Um, it's just gotten so ridiculous. Unless you've got the inside track, mm-hmm. some people do, that's great. But, uh, but it's much tar- harder, you know, and time, more time spent for the deal. True, true. And so Atlanta, what was the other, in the North Carolinas, right, mm-hmm. Tim? Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we like Charlotte a lot. Um, we're starting to think, you know, about that market. Um, we're, we've, we've done, I think, a really good job in Atlanta finding the right partners now. That market certainly seems like it has uh, a bit of runway left. It does feel like it's, um, you know, 18 to 24 months behind Dallas um, mm-hmm. in terms of kind of its economic growth. It's becoming a significant uh, transportation corridor. Um, and I don't know if that's because Memphis is being outgrown when you think of, you know, uh, FedEx and UPS and Louisville. But, you know, Atlanta, when you look at the southeast, obviously with the airport, um, you know, it's becoming a major player in transportation. And there seems to be a fair amount of job growth in that area. We're going to cultivate uh, Indianapolis. Um, we're actually planning a trip there um, in July. We like that market. Obviously, it's, it's you know not in your top 25 markets, but when you think about the opportunity and what's happening in Indianapolis, they're kind of like the silent killer. You know, they're, they're growing 
responsibly slowly, but we think, you know, there's, there could be a really great opportunity to get in there and, and find something at the right cap rates uh, that might be a little bit longer hold for us, but that will provide great uh, investment returns. Uh, and you, you struck on a bit of a, a point there talking about hold times. How are you currently underwriting your deals given where we are? You know, people are sort of doom and gloom that something's, something's coming around the corner. No, no one knows what. So are you projecting five years, seven years, 10 years? What are you sort of doing uh, in your modeling right now? We always, we always start with a five-year projection. I always think of things in terms of five-year five year bunches. Sure. Right? You know, I want to underwrite, look at the deal at five to see what it looks like, but then, but then know with your terms, your loan, that you're looking at 10 or 12. Mm-hmm. Hopefully in a decade, we can turn the economy around if it was. <laughs> Who knows? But at that, I'm willing to take that risk. I mean, you know, if you look at inflation and what we know is going to happen, borrowing a million dollars today is going to be paying back $800,000 tomorrow, I'm sure. It's just it's the way the way money works. So you've got some risk mitigation whenever you look at a longer term. But, you know, with Dallas, you can't, you can't underwrite something thinking that at 18 months, you're going to turn around and double your, your investor's profit, which has been kind of the standard right now. Mm-hmm. It's been it's been unbelievable. Even we're getting ready to go to market with a couple of properties in 19 months on the market. They've, they've more than doubled. And that's wow. just, when people think that that's normal. You know, it's, it's not, you know, it's unfortunate. <laughs> you're, you know, you're doing very well for their investors, but uh, you know, they expect that those, you know, that lightning is going to strike twice in the same place and that's not the case. So. Yeah. And that, that economy is only in one place in the United States today. And that's Dallas, right? I mean, it's right. arguably the most electric economy. And, and the danger is to Tom's point is that, you know, we do have some investors that think that that's normal, typical, mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, we try to temper that. <laughs> As they say, you know, you under, under promise and overachieve. And it sounds like you guys. <laughs> yeah. Overachieving is a great thing, but sometimes it's got its, uh, it's got its perils. You've got to, you've got to reel, reel them back from the edge and say, come on guys, we can't yeah. keep going after yeah. these it's risky deals. Indeed. <laughs> so guys, I wanted to start off and dive in a little bit more on the nuts and bolts of today's show, which is understanding the revenue management and the taxation management and why you both have such a passion for it. So from a high level point of view, let's talk about revenue management for, for, for a little bit, you know, people out there listening to the show, what is revenue management? Isn't it just gets rents and, you know, look at operating expenses and we're done. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, in a simplified form, I suppose I'm joking. That's probably <laughs> what it is. Um, but listen, it's all science and data. I mean, you know, when you think about all the data that's out there that we potentially can put our fingers in, and we're not right now, um, you know, I always like to think about it when people explain it to me uh, or ask me that that question is, you know, let's say that we've got a property and let's just take, you know, Fort Worth, for example. And, and we know who our customer is. Obviously, we've got a lot of history and data behind who our customer is. But, you know, when you think about the day of, of week and the week of, of the year mm-hmm. and weather patterns play a lot um, into, you know, when people are coming in the front door to the leasing office, the time of day, the day of week, uh, the time of year, weather patterns play a tremendous uh, aspect on, you know, what kind of demand is being created for that hour and that day. And it's all science behind it. Um, you know, it's nothing more than, than you know, really what airlines have done, right? I and mean, they're pro- probably the leader in this space when you think about how they know, you know, who you are on the other end of that computer and when you're buying a seat and your habits. And, you know, there's, there's really two, probably two big players in the multifamily space. Um, Rainmaker probably being the one that I'm most familiar with that um, have really started to dabble in it. And, you know, they know the customer exceptionally well. Now, it takes a lot of time to, to you know, pull in that data and all that analytics uh, to, to, you know, be able to, uh, you know, grab, I'm trying to think of how to, you know, say it the easiest way, but to be able to um, use that data to price rooms effectively. You know, this space, what's interesting to me is it's only as good as the human on the other end of the phone in the leasing office. So right now we depend on, you know, a, a survey being done where somebody picks up the phone and they're asking, you know, what's your two bedroom, two bathroom um, unit cost today and they're telling them and, and that's the data that we have so right. it, it's an interesting space that's for sure and then when you think about amenity revenue management whether it's covered parking or laundry facilities or designated parking spots I mean there, there are some real opportunities I think to think about it differently 
So, so just rewinding back uh, a couple of 30 seconds to what you said about the data aspect of it. And I think that's really critical in today's yeah. world, you know, 2017 and multifamily to a, a larger extent, you know, you just you hit it on the head. You're just doing a few cold calls and saying, well, what are you renting a two bedroom for? Do you have any pet fees? And that's sort of the data, but dive a little bit further into it. How are you applying that? You know, it sounds like you've got a lot of experience in it that revenue management to your actual properties today to make sure that, you know, you're, you're buying a property in the certain time of the year. Obviously, I think I know where I'm going with this question is that, you know, you're buying maybe in sort of the spring months to be ready for the summer. So you have the maximum, you know, renters coming through the door to try and get, you know, your, your property filled if that's the you know, investment strategy. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we haven't given that a lot of thought about yet, but you bring up a really, really great point that, you know, when we're acquiring properties, we, we haven't given it that kind of thought. I mean, this space, um, you know, at least our experience has been um, very challenging to, to acquire properties. I and mean, we have more equity than we have deals right now. Right? Um, and I, <laughs> hey, that's a good thing to have, man. <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a good thing and it's a horrible thing to have. So, you know, I wish, and, and maybe someday, right? I mean, I think you alluded to the point that, you know, there's probably something coming, whether it's a market correction or some sort of bubble, that, you know, we'll be able to think about it a little bit differently. Um, but, you know, when we do look at, at market comps and market rents, I and mean, we obviously look for properties that, you know, are underperforming in terms of, you know, what they're charging per square foot um, and look for those opportunities. But, you know, I think that this space, you know, once we get a good, uh, base of, of properties under our belt, we'll probably really start to think about how we price them a little bit differently um, versus maybe what our comp set is. Yep. Interesting. And to, to your point earlier, you were sort of, it sounds like you're trying to draw a similarity between resorts and or hotels and, and multifamily. And you're talking about days of the week, weeks of the year. How do you price that into a, a rent, a rent per square foot, given that you may be doing six or 12 month leases? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a, that's a great question. Um, Cause obviously, you know, the hotel industry is much different where you're renting right. for one or two or three nights, right? I, IDR, yeah. right? Average daily rate. Yeah, no, you know, look at you. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Maybe you should be a partner with us. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> you know, um, interesting question. Um, and I haven't, that, that's an area that we have to study that I think as, as I've spoken to um, some of the people um, that I've worked with in the past, that's the one question that they've had is, you know, when you think about six to 12 months leases, how do you price that in? But I think it always goes back to, you know, when they're signing that lease, right? Sure. Um, a friend of mine just rented a uh, really nice apartment in Seattle and he called me and he went in on a Tuesday at about three in the afternoon and looked at it, shopped it, went to another property um, and then came back on Saturday and the price was $75 more. Wow. Um, and he was really shocked at what it was. And I said, well, that's revenue management because you were in there on Tuesday at three when nobody's going in, right? And first of all, it's a Tuesday. Um, <laughs> secondly, it's at three o'clock and then he chooses to go back at uh, you know Saturday at three in the afternoon or noon. And ultimately he ended up renting it because he felt the squeeze and thought that he was gonna go back right. and it was gonna be even higher. Right. Um, so you know what they knew about him is, is you know, probably more and frightening than, than he probably wants them to know. <laughs> That's so interesting. And I guess you'd have to have your on-site property management really keyed into that sort of stuff, right? And, and setting, setting the bar at a certain level to say, look, guys, people are coming in shopping this throughout the week. We'll have it at X price. If they do start coming on weekends, let's bump it up a little bit, right? Let's, you know, they, there's that saying about, you know, the reasons everyone wanted uh, a certain, you know, widget is because they all arrived at the same time. You schedule them to come to see this yeah. property at the same time. And they're competing against each other. And it's human nature to say, well, I want this and I'm going to pay 75 bucks more than what you're going to pay for it, right? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's the old adage, you have to trust the data, mm -hmm. right? Anything can be over, overrode. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I learned is that e each property that we had had a revenue manager. And, you know, there, I remember many times in my, in my career at Great Wolf where, you know, we'd be going into March and we'd be down versus prior year and asking all those questions. And, and, you know, the revenue management team would always say, trust the data, trust the data. And it's so cyclical that you just have to sit back and, you know, it feels like you're playing roulette a little bit in Vegas. <laughs> um, but you do have to trust the data and, and believe that, you know, what's out there is, is actually 
true and factual. But, you know, th this space, we're going to need to, you know, think about, you know, with, with the leasing team, somebody in the office will have to have a revenue management background to some degree and understand data because it is all science. Right. No question about it. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Tom, you've been a bit quiet over there, mate. Let's get into your passionate thing. <laughs> Taxation management, right? <laughs> He's got a passion for revenue management. I'm like, you know, as soon as we grow and we have our own management team, yep. we're not, we're not that far off. Maybe, I, maybe, I, it sounds like it, boys. It sounds like it. I, I, just a just a quick little segue. I heard a, I met a developer in the in the hotel space from Seattle who was building a multifamily purely for Airbnb. But his backup plan to get financing on it was to be market rent long term leases, right? But the but wow. you know, so he came down to the financing tract of it that was going to be hard to get the financing on it. But I, I, I digress. But it was an interesting model because yeah, he oh, could totally. lean he could lean back and say, "Well, look, I'm just going to rent it for six months." Yeah, exactly. Months, right. So wow. Um, anyway, and, and probably in Seattle that would work. Yeah. Right. In, yeah. In, a, in a in a tier one market, class A property, yeah. you know, high class amenities. Yeah, for sure, hundred yeah, percent. Totally. totally. So, Tom, talk to me about the the taxation part of it. This is where the podcast takes a dramatic turn. <laughs> <laughs> Let's all talk taxes. <laughs> when you're making a decent living, though, taxes are a bitch. I'm yes, sorry, I could imagine. I could imagine. No, I, hey, keep it coming. I love it. I'm so, a fair mouth uh, So, yeah. So, when I, I knew getting out that my income was going to go from, uh, you know, I was working 110, 120 hours a week in residency, you know, pulling down about 35G, something crazy good like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I got out thinking, wow, if I, you know, when I go into making a serious, a higher level income, what are my taxes really going to be? And it was a little bit scary because I went into a 40% tax bracket. Wow. Uh, and it's a little sobering. It's nice to, uh, to have those, those checks. But at the same time, when you saw, you know, six figure incomes or so going out the window every year and, and that's okay. I didn't ever mind paying my fair share, but when you saw other business owners, things like that, that, uh, that had the abilities to grow their business and offset their income, uh, it was very sobering. And so, you know, being able to write off a $200 stethoscope and, and, you know, $100 in scrubs every year wasn't really quite, quite palatable. So, quite cutting it, right? Yeah, that's originally why I, uh, I got into it. And, and so on all our properties now, we always do a cost segregation. We have a third-party engineer come in and, and take care of that. And that way we're able to redistribute all the uh, pro rata um, depreciation, whether that's active or passive on the property. And that's one of the things physicians um, – the, the lots and a lot of the other professional folks, because we are tend to be independent contractors and or a W-2 employee um, in a 40% tax bracket, it, uh, it, it alleviates some of that heartache to doing that. So yeah. Interesting. And, and you talk about cost segregation, talked a little bit about that on this show. Yeah. Um, when do you like to implement your cost segregation on, on, on a, say, a five-year hold, right? Yeah. Are you doing it after you've done your, your massive reposition, where on the timeline do you like to slot it in? If, if, we're, if we know it's going to be a longer hold property, a five-year at least or more, then I usually do it right away because I want okay. to capture all that CapEx because that first year depreciation is going to be great. I mean, right. that's a thing. I would rather de you know, delay taxes now and then uh, and pay the penalty later when we've got a larger upside and we can do that. So if we're doing, for example, we've got a, a nice little property in, in downtown Florida in the cultural district that we are planned hold was going to be Two years at most, um, I didn't even bother because you know you're going to have to pay the piper at some point. Mm -hmm. and for a cost seg uh, on those wasn't going to be worth it because we're going to be recapturing that in so quickly anyways. So, right. so it just tends to work really well to educate um, and then to have other avenues. My wife, for example, is a, uh, is a realtor. Well, I wouldn't say realtor. Let me say she's got a real estate license. How about right, that? Right. Uh, right. Just to get, you know, if you're familiar with the tax laws about being a professional, it's either recorded 750 hours a year or you're actively involved and you're licensed in the, uh, in the arena. So it works very good from a team aspect, uh, her and I, and that it allows us to get maximum penetration for our tax benefits. Nice, nice stuff. Uh, are there any sort of other ways out there? Because we talk about taxation as, you know, either cost segregation, depreciation, being a full-time, um, you know, being full-time in the, in the space. Are there any other sort of tidbits out that you can give to the listeners that maybe not have thought about a certain type of taxation that may help them? Sure. I think the one big thing, and, and this depends on if you're strictly or you're a passive investor versus you're actively involved. Um, I mean, I, we've looked quite a bit at defined benefit plans. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, as you increase in age, um, that you can 
drastically increase your uh, your taxability or your your, your non taxability with IRA contributions, things like that, up, upwards of you know one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. I'm not sure the exact tiers, but there's another little hidden gem there. It just matters of what your what your cash flow is and where your your risk uh, uh, is for how much cash you want to put away that year. Right. Nice. Nice. And I, I also, you know, I, I say a lot on this show that the, the real estate investing is the only investment in the world that you can have the four ways of, of making money, cash flow, appreciation, amortization, and the taxation. And, you know, you, the, the government isn't in the business of owning real estate, right? They won't even give you, in, you know, that you can't even get a loan on for your stock investors, but you can right. get a loan and you can get your interest payments um, as a tax to depreciation. Uh, show me another investment that does that. So it's, it's, it's an incredible vehicle and, and, and it sort of segues into the education part of it, Tom, because I know you're, you're an active blogger, you, you're coming from the medical field. Why are physicians so hell bent on, on maybe not investing in real estate and how are you trying to change that? Sure. Well, I actually wrote a book on this very topic that came out uh, last month, or I guess March. So we did very well on Amazon. We were number one in real estate and the investing space for a while. So um, I think the biggest reason is we get so uh, we get so focused. I mean, most of us have spent four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, anywhere from three to eight years in residency. You become so uh, so dependent and being, I would say, objective, and you're really trained to make decisions for yourself and and look at the data independently. And, and although that is a very good thing in real estate, it tends to make you very narrow-minded and only look at medicine. Smartest person in the room. Right. Well, they, they think they are. And I wouldn't say that that's always, that's always the case. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think, that, uh, I think that it takes somebody a little bit more open-minded to look at all aspects and actually trust. Physicians as a whole aren't the most trusting people because that's the way we were trained. Mm-hmm. We were trained to look at the data and be very staunch and trust, trust what you're thinking. And so I think that's, that's the large majority of it. I think as the tide changes, especially with as, as medicine has matured and the old school thoughts, you know, from the seventies, eighties and nineties where medicine was still very gruff, things have changed dramatically in medicine, even over the last decade. And what you're seeing is the people that are getting into it tend to be um, a little bit more corporate minded, a little bit more W2 driven rather than being an independent contractor. And so you're seeing less of it and they're really more willing to look at alternative investments, which is a good thing. Right. Right. And, and it's so funny that it's considered an alternative investment, right? Real estate. And, and, and it just blows my mind that we're, we're, we're spoon fed to the stocks and, you know, right. we're invest in stocks, even through high, you know, through university and high That's school, it. it's, it's right. stock, you know, let's give it to a broker who's going to, you know, apparently do take the, your money, right? <laughs> <laughs> let's do that. Yeah. You know, they're making, they're, they're being really successful being a broker, right? They take their yeah. one or 2%. So it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, talk to me a little bit about both of you that the transition into raising capital, like obviously Tom, you wrote a book and Tim, you've come from a very much a, a you know high net worth. You've worked with private equity in the past. How did that change when you went to do your own deals to start raising capital and become that key person of influence about real estate investing? And, and, and you know, I'll let you either you go first, but I know you've got to change people's mindsets, right? Like this yeah. is what I'm doing, particularly for you, Tom, being a, a physician to go into real estate investing. That's like completely 180. For you, Tim, it's a little bit more of a natural progression, I would imagine, going from COO to owning your own real estate investing firm, but there still has to be a transition there, right? And people still have oh, yeah. to trust you. So talk to me a little bit about how that worked. And was there any you know, stumbling blocks or anything like that? Yeah. Tim, Tim's actually more in the thick of this than I am. I will say, uh, you know, he's, he's been doing this, what about a little over a year now. Um, I would say that because I started about a decade ago or so people were seeing what I was doing without raising uh, capital. Mm-hmm. I was doing it on my own back until I, I, left my practice a number of years ago and then went to that next level. So I had built up a certain level of uh, not trust isn't the right word, but I guess a, a reputation that I, that I was, I was doing these things. So it was a little easier for me to parlay that. Um, and I did start the foundation of, of numerous uh, of my acquisitions and, uh, and syndications came from those people. So it was a little bit easier for me to launch into it. And I'll let Tim kind of explain because it's been easier for me mm-hmm. uh, truthfully than it probably has been for Tim. Interesting. Yeah, no, great, great segue. So, you know, all the people that that um, I've been talking to know me as Tim, the theme park guy, or Tim as the hotelier. <laughs> yep. And, um, you know, to see me make this change, you know, one thing I've learned, um, and, you know, we talk a lot about it, is that uh, integrity 
and your ethics are obviously significant, right? And, and it's one thing that we underscore um, with everything we do is that the investor is always first. I mean, Tom and I and, and Abel, I should probably give a little shout out to Abel, who's another partner in our firm, who's our CPA. He's the guy that, you know, cranks through the numbers. But, you know, we put our investors first um, in every decision we make. So um, what's been interesting for me is like, ooh, okay, so, uh, you know, I'm now going out and I'm, I'm asking people to invest with us. And, and, and that, you know, it does make you pause a minute when you think about somebody's writing you a check for fifty, seventy-five, a hundred thousand dollars, and that the trust that they're placing in your hands. I can't underscore how how um, how important that is to understand that you know those decisions that we're making every day uh, are the best ones, and that we're always putting the investor first. So um, it's been it's been an interesting process. Um, uh, as recent as two nights ago, you know, I, I had dinner with another fellow and he committed that he was going to invest in our Atlanta project. And, you know, that means a lot. I mean, it really does when somebody believes in you. And listen, um, make no mistake, I, I've jumped on the back of Tom many times. I mean, I've got books plastered all over my body because it lends it lends you know, immediate credibility, right? When you have MD behind your name, all of a sudden you're the smartest person in the room. Which isn't the case. Let me just go ahead and say that. Right <laughs> no, no, but you know, listen, I mean, it, it's, I'm not going to lie here and say that I, I've, I've jumped on Tom's back and I said, well, I may have done the theme park thing, but here's my brother who, who wrote a book. Right. And you want to hold that up. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, hold yeah, it, hold it up. Hold it up. We want to see passive income. <laughs> Woo, awesome. Woo. <laughs> so, um, you know, it does lend credibility. So I have, you know, I mean, listen, again, you know, they've only known me for about a year in this space, but um, it's been an interesting process uh, thus far. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's such an interesting, you know, I was a structural engineer for many, for a better part of a decade, trying to get transition into, you know, raising capital. It's, you know, you're never not not raising capital right there's never not enough in my in my business when i'm starting to get it's it's always trying to get that the next the, the white powder right continually talking with people out to dinner i was out last night to dinner out tonight to dinner. i'm going to a, a conference on thursday and friday here in huntington beach it's just all about networking networking network until you get a, a a you know you create a thought platform which is obviously your book tom which has been i think a great as you said tim a, a credibility enhancer right it, it just it, it goes to say look, i know what i'm talking about read this book after you've read it come and let's have a have dinner or we have a coffee and we can talk a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of what i'm actually doing because it's just a, it's a funnel right it's all about you know this podcast is a funnel people will listen they'll listen to you guys they want to reach out to you they'll, they'll read your book and they're the little things that you just oh okay i'm starting to change people's mindset about what i'm doing in this space and it goes back to your point about being credible and trustworthy because that's the most important thing, um, you know, to be, to stand on and have your morals to stand on because you are taking people's money and investing <clears throat> large sums of it in some, uh, in some pretty incredible deals. But, uh, but back to your point, I think it's, it's really, really important to, to hit on the fact that, you know, you're confident in the investment that you're, you're searching, right? And, and you say right. that you, you're, you're, you take your investors first. Well, it also comes down to what deals are you chasing, right? And and how are you mitigating that risk or the downside to your investors? And you know maybe you shoulder the risk a little bit more, non-recourse debt, um, making sure you've got a massive upside because you know that the in market, the, the in place rents are so much lower than the market rents. You know, there's there's different ways you can do it. Uh, and I'm I'm sort of going on here a bit, but I. But I really like that the point of key person of influence and, and creating that that sphere and, and changing that mindset because it's tough because out of the two of you, I would have naturally thought, Tim, you would have been the more natural capital raiser given your background in, in real estate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me put it this way, Reed. You know what's funny is I have more trouble or I enjoy more um, and I've lost more sleep over raising capital um, than a gunshot victim in the middle right. of, I mean, I know that sounds horrible, but as far as the mental capacity of knowing and having an algorithmic thing, um, it's, there's almost more trust in somebody giving you your money or giving sure. them their money, knowing that, Hey, this is, this is everything they've worked for versus, versus, versus a medical emergency. And it's, and the day I realized I was in trouble was where I enjoyed that more. Right. And I knew I was hooked. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, guys, what does the future hold for you two, given the, all your successes? You've written a book, guys. You've got now starting to raise a bunch of capital. You've got too much capital by the sounds of it. You need to find more deals. So where are you guys headed in 2017 and beyond? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we've developed a business plan, um, a five-year plan. Um, that's really important for us to, you know, obviously pave the road ahead. Um, we're going to diversify, as Tom mentioned, a little bit more into light commercial industrial. We think that, you know, the uh, multifamily or not multifamily, but hospitality space, limited and select service has a lot of opportunity. Um, and we're trying to build a brand here. I think it's really important for us to firmly establish and cultivate the roots of Nepali capital. So we, we've spent a lot of time, you know, starting to, to build our infrastructure uh, so that we have a solid foundation and the peers of our, of our house that we're building are very, very strong. So, you know, I think that we're being responsible in the term, in the numbers of, of deals we're trying to get done this year. Um, but, you know, we're, we're also at the same time trying to be very ubiquitous. Um, and that's one of the things that we, you know, want to say thank you about is having us on your show um, because you know, we're trying to educate um, our investors and obviously, you know, bring new investors into the pipeline that like what we're doing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I would say on that to, uh, to grow like an oak rather than grow like a weed. That's, right. that's the important thing is doing it right. Well said. <laughs> it's really a lot deep. of people that, are, that, that jump into a hot market because they think it'll go forever. And uh, that's when you start getting in trouble and yep. you have to stick to your underwriting and you have to go essentially just like when we talk about alternative investments, go where everybody's not. That's the key. I think that's really come to the fore, and particularly in my search this this year is in the last you know twelve months, and, and where I'm telling my analysts to go such you know, digging up the the dirt is uh, is definitely not in all these sort of shiny object markets, right? Look at Dallas, Fort Worth. Look at you know different places. Phoenix, Arizona is another really hot market. You know, start looking outside where people are comfortable with investing right now. So right. it's yeah. really yeah. incredible stuff, guys. At the end of the show, I always ask my uh, you know listeners and my my guests, I should say to give me their top five investing tips. Ready to dive into it? Yes. All right. So I know you'd have to have a daily habit. What is it and how do you, how does it help you keep on track towards your goals? <laughs> oh, mine, um, I would say it, it's, it's actually, it's my best habit, my worst habit. And I'm sure it's, it's everybody else's too. It's the dang iPhone. Um, I live and die by that thing. Um, I swear emails. I'm, I'm one of the big things about Nepali capital is communication. And I want to be very, very quick, whether it's an investor or anything else, Tim and I and Abel and our, our, um, our executive assistants constantly communicate via text phone. I mean, it is, it's ridiculous how much we have almost to a fault. So, so that, that's, that's your daily habit to keep oh, every morning, 6am I get up, I am on my email, I'm going through, and uh, I probably once an hour check to make sure that I'm not missing something and keeping on top of something. I know that sounds disgusting, but it, it is. That <clears throat> and, and, and Reed being on the opposite end of that <laughs> is disgusting. Um, <laughs> I'm like, dude, it's 6.05. Texting me already. Hey, um, you know, gotta get yeah, stuff done. So, so I, I think, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do is, is try to maintain a clear head. So, I'm, I'm really trying to go on a very long walk and hike every day mm -hmm. to clear my head without my phone um, <laughs> because I think it provides great clarity. Um, I do, and I've tried to think about this a lot. I do my best thinking on an airplane, and mm -hmm. I don't know if that's because of all my, my time flying around the country in Great Wolf, but I've tried to say what is it about being strapped in a seat where you can't get out of there that's <laughs> – driving me to think my best. Right. Um, and I, and I found that a suitable replacement, just, you know, taking a long hike. Nice. Nice. Well, uh, Tom, I'm sure your wife is, uh, loving, oh, <laughs> loving, yeah. loving your yeah. 605 text. Turn the yeah. bloody thing off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Believe me, she's already looked at me through the door a couple of times, giving me the evil eye. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, who's the most influential person in your career to date? Tim? Uh, you go ahead, Tom. Cause All right. So this is horrible and it's so cliche. I mean, I, because I was sitting here as we were going through this thinking about this. I would say Robert and Bob Helms uh, are the yep. two. Um, Bob Helms, just an incredible guy. If you've ever met him, you know, Bob is the, is the father of Robert Helms. Of course, is uh, the Real Estate Guys radio podcast. Mm -hmm. um, I would say Bob and Robert, um, listening to their podcast and, of course, their foundations with Robert Kiyosaki. I mean, the guy just was an outside thinker for years um, and, and has really motivated me in a lot of ways early, early on. 
Um, but I'm sure everybody says that, so that's why I'm <laughs> cliche about it. <laughs> well, not not Robert Helm, not not yeah. the guys. Robert Kiyosaki for sure, but yeah. um, but the Helms, no. So uh, mine's going to be actually quite different. Um, uh, the former Six Flags uh, president, um, I actually grew up with him very young in my career, a fellow by the name of Gary Story. Um, I worked with Gary for years and years, and he gave me unbelievable opportunity. Um, unfortunately, he passed away at a very young age due to juvenile diabetes well well early in his life, but really pushed me to to do what I thought was absolutely insurmountable things. You know, he would say, I want this done by tomorrow morning. And I was young and stupid and actually put it on my back and did it. And I think I learned a lot from him. And probably the second person would be my brother, to be completely oh. candid with you. Um, <laughs> about, oh, yeah, okay, he's looking at me. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, in many ways, listen. And, and, you know, some people may say it's cliche, but one of the things that I've learned um, about Tom is, you know, the rest of us run from fear. Um, and I'm one of those people that, you know, tend to look at, at something and will go the other direction. And Tom actually runs into the fire. He probably should have been a firefighter where I'd be running away, grabbing a hose. <laughs> he runs in to save the women and babies. Um, right. and runs towards fear because it, 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 it you know, motivates you in, in, in many different ways. But, um, you know, when I think about Tom's career and, and you know, we're nine years apart, so, um, which is interesting to think about that, you know, I was graduating in high school when Tom was just getting out of diapers practically. He was right. like, um, I was a late bloomer. I was not <laughs> getting out of diapers. Thanks. Right, right. I was so, a little slow, uh, I told you. Still wetting the bed, right? Yeah, no, I mean, when I think about his career and, and you know, we have an older sister, when I think about his career and, and being much younger than I, I am, and, and certainly, you know, we have an older sister who's five years older than I am, when I think about his career and, and kind of how he thought about it and, and, you know, he alluded to him being a high school student. I was, I was very similar to him, I was a terrible high school student. Um, and for him to, you know, focus and persevere and get through medical school, um, Tom has incredible drive and, and I I think that's really helped me, um, you know, after the 31 years of being in hospitality entertainment that, you know, you feel like you've seen it all and done it all, but this space is new and exciting for me and, and I'm learning, which is, which is absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, I owe a lot of that to Tom. Nice, nice. Guys, pretty touching stuff. Um, I wanted to say congratulations to both of you because it sounds like you've got some incredible people in your careers that have helped you, you know, get to where you are today. So, so well done. Um, a couple last questions is, what is the most influential tool in your business? And I might already know what yours is, Tom. So I have to say technology I and mean, my laptop, I, I sometimes worry about losing it. I mean, I've got it my whole life on this thing. And I have to say that there's just, if you can say one person, it's able. I would say he's probably our most influential tool. The guy is amazing. I mean, he can translate numbers into opportunity like nobody's business. So actually, he's, he's such a cog in the wheel. I'd have to say him okay. the more I think about right. it. And yourself, Tim? Oh, boy, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I, I absolutely think it's probably able, no doubt. Um, you know, and I, I apologize. I'm you know, jumping on Tom's back on that one. But there's no doubt that able is a really, really important part of our team. Um, you know, we, we filter many deals to him like you do, your analysts. And I think that Abel's help us to think uh, differently about, you know, looking at the numbers upside down, inside out. So, yeah, I would say Abel as well. Nice stuff. Guys, second last question is, what advice can you give to people out there wanting to get started in the multifamily space today in 2017? <clears throat> what's the number one piece of advice um, to go out and take some action and, and, and get deals done? Uh, don't procrastinate. I think that's the biggest problem with people is just waiting for the next deal. When's it going to be better? You know, is it a 7% return or a 10% return? I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't freaking matter, right? I mean, it's right. you've got to get off the sidelines and you've got to pony up and at least get in there. doesn't need to be a lot of money, but it need, it will force you once you put skin in the game to learn. And once you have a stake in that equity, you'll be amazed at what happens to you and the learning you'll just passively absorb because you've got that interest. Sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's that run towards fear versus, you know, running away from it. I think many people probably would spend a lot of time overanalyzing and saying, well, these are the reasons why I can't do this versus these are the reasons why I should do this. Um, I would also say education. I mean, that's been significant for me. My education curve the last year has been significant. Um, so, you know, the great thing about this space is there's a lot of tools out there and there's a million people to talk to. That's one thing that I've been really um, uh, surprised to, to find out is just that, you know, you can pick up the phone and call anybody and they're willing to share their advice. 
Sure. Awesome stuff. So guys, where can people reach you? They want to continue this conversation with you guys. You seem very approachable. They want to get your book. Where can they go? So the book is on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. It is called the passive income physician surviving a uh, career crisis by expanding net worth. Um, They can go to our website, which is nepalicap.com and that's spelled N A P A L I C A P.com. Uh, as well as I have a blog that I haven't been admittedly keeping up with because we've been quite busy for this uh, deal we have that uh, we're getting ready to hit with in Atlanta here in the next couple of days. Um, and that blog is freedominthelack.com. Nice. Yeah, and or um, they can email either one of us, Tim at NepaliCap or Thomas at NepaliCap. Um, we're, we're, you know, both, both very quick and nimble and we respond to all of our emails exceptionally fast i would say <laughs> 6 a.m <laughs> yep, <exactly. laughs> right. well guys you've certainly provided some incredible advice uh some of the takeaway pieces of advice that i you know took away from this interview with protect your downside um and know the data i think they were really two big things coming out of yeah. out of this conversation is know your data for, for revenue management and taxation management and protect your downside for your investors. They're always come first. Uh, and, and, and I like that we talked a little about with you, uh, Tim, the, the, the change in mindset to, to attracting capital and then putting that capital into a deal and how that for you, Tom, was more scary and give, gave you sleep more sleepless nights than someone with a gunshot wound, which is pretty, pretty <laughs> awesome. I mean, it's it, it's a lot of your listeners aren't going to understand that. But you've got to meet Tom, you'll get it. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for dropping by. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch thank up soon. Thank you so much, Reed. Take care. Well, there you have it. Another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice. Tom and Tim are a great duo. I love those guys. I've no, I've only just met them, but they uh, seem like a great bunch of fun. I'm sure a few beers would go down well, uh, a few great stories. If you do like uh, any of the stuff that we've mentioned on today's show, remember to jump on my website. Any of the links we did mention, Tom's book, their website, their emails. Jump on my website, rsmpropertygroup.com. Remember to click on the podcast tab. It will all be up there. Hit them up if you have any questions. I want to thank you guys for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge. It's because that's what we're all about here on this show, continuing to grow your financial IQ. So until next week, take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing.